Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Homes.com. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. As they say at homes.com, we've done your homework. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Thanks for downloading this Freakonomics Radio podcast. This summer, we're putting out five hour-long shows that will air on public radio stations across the country. One of them is about family business, particularly the very common practice of handing down a family business to the next generation. We have some questions about that practice, such as, is it a good idea? What do the numbers have to say? And is America a leader in the family handoff business or a laggard? Today's podcast gives you a taste of one of the many stories from that program. If I told you we'd be hearing today from a guy named Peter Buffett, and he's a musician, and his father is famous, who would you think his father is? Of course, Jimmy Buffett. But that's not Peter's dad. Peter's dad is named Warren, as in Warren Buffett, chairman and CEO of the investment group Berkshire Hathaway and the third richest man in the world. But Peter didn't follow his dad into the family business, which is exactly why we're talking to him. Uh, Peter Buffett, composer, author, philanthropist. <laughs> and uh, I do those in, in that order, actually. <laughs> May, well, maybe switched around a little, but... Depending on day of the week? Yeah, yeah, that... yeah, I think so. Okay, very good. <laughs> From WNYC and APM, American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host... Stephen Dubner. Peter Buffett has written a book called Life is What You Make It. Find your own path to fulfillment. It's sort of an investment guide, but not the kind of investing that Warren Buffett does. It's about investing in yourself, about acquiring the kind of human capital that makes you happy. Now, Warren Buffett, as you probably know, is famously down to earth for someone who's worth about $47 billion. He lives in the same house he bought for $31,500 in 1958 in Omaha, Nebraska. And that's where Peter Buffett grew up. It was a very ordinary upbringing. Peter is 53 years old. His whole life, he says, when people find out whose kid he is, they're shocked. 
They say, but you're so normal. Well, I think the assumptions are uh, based on, of course, uh, celebrity culture, what we've seen just grow and grow. Uh, it's always been there, of course, since Cleopatra probably, but uh, but celebrity culture in the Paris Hiltons of the world. So there was the you're not an obnoxious rich kid that thinks they're entitled to everything. Uh, and then there's the I walked to public school. I had the same English teacher my mother had, you know, uh, all these kind of really fundamental Midwestern things. This is all taking um, place in Omaha, Nebraska. Right, Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, my great grandfather's name was Ernest and his brother's name was Frank. <laughs> so <laughs> there you have it, Frank and Ernest. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it, it came from, again, uh, just a collection of assumptions around what a child of a wealthy person probably grew up in, acts like, uh, thinks he's entitled to, all that kind of stuff. Um, talk to me for a minute about your uh, degree of interest in Berkshire growing up. Well, you know, growing up, we really didn't know what my dad did. <laughs> it was quite mysterious. He read a lot, which he still does. And I will say that you walk into the house today, you see the same thing that I saw in 1965. I mean, there's he's just this consistent human being uh, in spades. It was incredible. Uh, but we didn't know what he did. In fact, uh, when my sister filled out a form, I think in fourth or fifth grade, about what our parents did, she put security analysis, and it was assumed that what he did is checked alarm systems. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it it you know to a kid, it's like, what do all the numbers on the page mean, and what exactly is you know the the New York Stock Exchange and buying and selling and all that. So we, yeah, we really didn't know. Now, at some point, you figured it out. Um, I'm guessing that may have been gradual. Tell me about that. It was very gradual. People will ask me, you know, what was it like growing up in this household. Uh, when did you realize that your father had amassed all this wealth? And and my answer is, I was probably about twenty five. No <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the truth is, it just wasn't around. I mean, I can't say enough for actions speaking louder than words. So we didn't grow up around the exposition of of wealth. Okay, at some point you figured out your dad was that security analysis was not checking fire alarms and that there <laughs> right. was good money in it, whatever it was, <laughs> right. and that he'd actually done done quite well and was was doing even better. Um, at, at some point, did you get in, in did you get uh, interested in Berkshire Hathaway itself and the business? And did you put a toe into it? Were you an intern? Tell me about that. Well, you know, I, I'm the last of three children. So uh, my sister didn't go into the business. My brother didn't, although he is sort of uh, looked at as taking over the chairmanship at some point. But he, he didn't go into the business. So I was the last great hope <laughs> for my dad. And I went off to college uh, because I got in, frankly. I went to Stanford and I went because I got in. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to be when I supposedly grew up. And at some point, about a year in, I thought, well, it's dumb not to at least explore this a little bit. And my dad was very accommodating, certainly. He sent me some information about the business and a bunch of old annual reports and things. And it you know, it just wasn't there for it me. It didn't speak uh, to you. Know. And I knew it and he knew it and he wasn't pushing it at all. I mean, he, you know, I grew up him saying, do what you love. That's the thing. Uh, you know, there's nothing more important than that. And we both knew that this wasn't something that I was passionate about. So Sounds kind of wonderful. Oh, it's tremendous. Yeah, very lucky. What would you say to other fathers or mothers who founded companies about whether they should involve their sons or daughters in running the business after the founders stepped aside? What do you, what do you say to them? 
Well, you know, my dad talks about the ovarian lottery and <laughs> this idea that you're, you know, you're born into these circumstances that you can't, at least as far as I'm concerned, you can't control when you're on the other side of being born. And and so I think there's a version of that that holds true in this. You know, the odds of having a son or daughter that are as passionate and excited and driven as the founder of a business was or even the, the person that took it over, whatever that might be, whatever passion and drive was there in that person, the odds of that being in the next generation I think are incredibly small. But I think that if the child is truly passionate about it and you know lives and breathes the same thing, absolutely. But again, what are the odds? Coming up, how running the family business is either a dream come true or your worst nightmare. Also, how Berkshire Hathaway is a little bit like your favorite beetle. And all your charms whenever I want you, all I have to do is dream. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package lists, and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. From WNYC and APM, American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. In 2006, Warren Buffett announced he was giving away 85% of his wealth to charity, most of it to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Each of his three grown children, meanwhile, got about a billion dollars to set up their own philanthropies. Peter Buffett and his wife, Jennifer, created the Novo Foundation, which focuses on young women in the developing world. Now, Keep in mind, that billion is to be spent on other people. It's not kicking around cash. But don't worry about the Buffett kids. Peter, for instance, when he was 19, 
was given a bequest in the form of Berkshire Hathaway stock. Because we didn't grow up wealthy, uh, or, or seemingly, uh, we never thought about an inheritance. We never assumed we would be getting anything at any time. Uh, and, and we weren't bitter or thinking that we should for some reason. We just grew up in a house where you work hard and you make your way in life, and hopefully you have a well-lived life based on all sorts of criteria. And so when we got the money at 19... I probably must have known it was coming because my brother and sister came first, uh, but I wasn't thinking about it. Like, oh, my God, I can't wait. And in fact, I remember I think the letter started from my dad with Bonanza time has arrived or something <laughs> like that. I mean, it was this moment where I was searching and thinking, I think I want to get into music. This money shows up. And so I talked to my parents about what do you think? Maybe I could quit school for a little bit and try my hand at music. And my dad and mom both were extremely supportive of that idea. My dad gave me some advice in terms of here's what you could spend in a month and not really eat into much principal. And, you know, I was a college kid. I didn't need much. So we didn't expect it. And so when it came, it was a surprise. And I certainly didn't expect anything else. And and so that mentality, of course, makes you want to put that $90,000 to work as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm sure you've uh, been asked this question before, and I know you've answered it before, but that $90,000 when you were 19 would be worth what today? Over $70 million. And and I am living proof that I paraphrase it as your money or your life, uh, but um, living proof that I would much rather have invested in myself, taken the time, and grown my own life with all the mistakes and all the successes and everything else that I can say is mine, as opposed to have a pile of money that essentially belong to somebody else's success. Do people believe you when you tell that to them? Well, they do, and it must be the the sound of my voice because it's. I love being this kind of living example of somebody that would much rather have a life than the money. Do you ever have a dream, or maybe it's a nightmare, where <laughs> you are running Berkshire Hathaway? Um. Yeah, I don't, it would be somewhere between a dream and a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> because I do feel like all three of us kids have an element of my dad's uh, overarching uh, value system and philosophy and, and, and take on life. So there's a certain feeling uh, that would be okay, you know, if, if I did that, except that I have a life that I love and even the the philanthropic work worried me a little bit about getting into that so deeply that I'd lose track of where my music was going. Luckily, that hasn't happened. Uh, but that would be my concern is that I'd get thrown off my own personal track, frankly. Um, tell me what you know or what you think about the the succession plans at Berkshire Hathaway. I don't know really anything. Um, what I think is that we'll start to hear more uh, because he doesn't want to – uh, have the the company in any sort of limbo or question mark. And so I know when he feels it's right, he'll uh, make announcements that, that put people at ease for sure. Uh, he's incredibly healthy, especially for his diet. It's phenomenal. So <laughs> he's not going anywhere anytime soon. He wants to be buried with a Ouija board so he can keep working <laughs> afterwards. You know, he, he's going to do everything he can to stay current and, and engaged 
Uh, and, you know, my brother will make sure that, that there's a consistent, you know, overall value system still at work. Any indication yet of what shareholders think of your brother's uh, secession as chairman? No, I have no idea. And it'll be interesting, of course, to see what happens with the stock immediately after my dad's death because people will, you know, uh, assume something massive has changed. And, of course, in some ways it has. But I kind of liken it to the the uh, death of John Lennon. I mean, here's a guy where he passed away and, and there's a certain aspect of what he does that's no longer here, but the catalog is strong. <laughs> it's not going away. I'm still listening to Beatles songs. The underlying companies at Berkshire are strong. Those will not change. And so I don't think the value should shift at all, but, you know, people's emotions are different. A working-class hero is something to be Stay tuned for five hour-long episodes of Freakonomics Radio. They'll be playing on finer public radio stations this summer. You'll hear a lot more about the ins and outs of family business, but you'll also hear from Romanian witches, the dean of suicide studies, and a couple of prostitutes. Oh, yeah, a bunch of economists as well. See you then. Freakonomics Radio is a co-production of WNYC, APM, American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes Susie Lechtenberg, Chris Neary, Beret Lamb, and Colin Campbell. Our engineer is David Herman. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next episode in your sleep. You can find more audio at FreakonomicsRadio.com. And as always, if you want to read more about the hidden side of everything, go to Freakonomics.com. Working class hero is something to be Everyone knows that the best way to tell a good story is over a good drink. Spirit in a Bottle, Tells and Drinks from Tito's Handmade Vodka, brings them together. In its first ever cocktail book, Tito's offers fans recipes, mixology tips, and a never-before-seen look at its journey from a one-room distillery to becoming America's favorite vodka. Order your copy today at titosvodka.com book. Read it and sip with Tito's. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.